0: I think this evening's talk somehow relates to Narayan's talk of last night, although I'm not entirely sure how, but I think it does. And I'd like to, what I want to do in the talk this evening, and what I have done is somehow build this talk around some of the kind of sacred literature of women's Traditions, sacred poetry of women's traditions. I think when we delve into some of the sacred literature of women in different traditions over centuries in different countries around the world, in different traditions, there's a number of themes that start to stand out. I, I would almost call them a kind of collective language or a language of the heart. It's a language of the heart which is really rooted in a longing for freedom, which is a longing that crosses traditions and cultures and time. And often I, I, I think back, personally, You know, I think back to all these women leading these incredibly courageous and fearless lives of their time in nunneries, in caves, in monasteries, in rickety shacks on mountainsides, and coming out with this most awesome poetry and language, And sometimes when I read this poetry, I see the language is rooted in themes, themes of liberation or themes in which their spiritual paths have been really rooted. Some of these themes that really stand out is how many women over centuries have rooted their path in the ground of love, And in the ground of nature, empathy, interconnectedness. So I'd like to just read you, in the beginning, just a few of these poems. The first is written by a 13th century Flemish nun. And she said, the madness of love is a blessed fate. And if we understood this, we would seek no other. It brings into unity what was divided, and this is the truth. Bitterness it makes sweet, it makes a stranger a neighbor, and what was lowly it raises on high. Several hundred years earlier, Queen Makadi. Makeda, of Sheba, Queen Sheba, wrote, Wisdom is sweeter than honey. It brings more joy than wine. Illumines more than the sun. Is more precious than jewels. She causes the ears to hear and the heart to comprehend. I love her like a mother, and she embraces me as her own child. I will follow her footprints and she will not cast me away. In quite another time and place, one of the earliest Taoist nuns wrote, Meditating at midnight, meditating at noon, a mind-like autumn comes to the way's deep heart. Under motionless waves, Fish and dragons freely leap in the sky without limits, only the moonlight stays. I think what we hear in these poems, in this poetry, and many like them, is a yearning for a boundless heart, a love, almost a quality of transcendent love and wisdom really a love differently than we often think of love, as a love that liberates, a love that brings peace where there's conflict and division, that heals and restores where things have crumbled. And in the teaching of metta, as we've been exploring it here, and as the Buddha spoke about metta, also speaks about this boundless love, and kindness. In Spikameta, the, the Buddha said, put away all hindrances. Let your mind full of love pervade one quarter of the world, and so to the second quarter, and so the third, and so the fourth, and then the whole wide world, above, below, around, and everywhere. All together continue to pervade with a love-filled mind, abounding, sublime, beyond measure, freed from hatred and ill will. Now, Just as much of women's sacred literature is really pervaded with the themes of love and the heart of longing, so too does the theme of connectedness with nature and connection itself has being the ground of awakening, re- really repeat itself through time and through different cultures. The seeking not only for a love that is almost transcendent, but the seeking for an embodied spiritual path that can so clearly be seen, rooted in the cycles of nature, the cycles of the world, that so poignantly remind us of the seasons of our own life and the life of everything around us. Birth and death, beginnings and endings, arisings and passings, reminding us to find a way to live and be in this world which is somehow aligned and at peace with these natural rhythms. To live with respect, and integrity, and compassion, and freedom to learn really how to live a fearless life amidst all that which changes. A Taoist nun wrote, she said, Late Indian summers, soft breeze fanning out, The sun shines on the hidden cottage south of the river, December, and the apricot's first flowers open. A person looks, the blossom looks back. Plain heart, seeing into plain heart. And from Japan, an early nun living in the mountains in a simple hut. She said, although I try to hold the single thought of Buddha's teachings in my heart, I cannot help but hear the many crickets' voices calling as well. And she went on, although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. And the theme of these poems it really speaks of women's awakening through solitude and through interconnectedness and not to make these two into dualisms. The cricket's voices heard amidst holding the Buddha thought of the Buddha, of course, the cricket's voices, are the cries of the world. And yet somehow solitude and aloneness is so needed in order to be able to hear those cries. And for many women in the past and present, really nature was their teacher speaking to them of the timeless timeless themes of liberation, the calling to know a deep and unshakable emptiness, emptiness of separation, emptiness of self and calling upon nature to remind them to find a way of not holding themselves apart from anything. That within the beginnings and endings and all the seasons of life that we see so evidently all around us, we actually, if we look closely, we see that nothing is fixed for a single moment. That our self, our ideas of self and our ideas of life, in truth are fixed only by our views about them. And that apart from our views, nothing at all is fixed in this life. And to learn to live in the ground of that steadiness and unshakable inner understanding about birth and death, to actually the calling to really know a freedom which doesn't hold anywhere and doesn't hold onto anything. Rhiannon, an early Japanese nun who who lived a life filled with loss and grief and disappointment, she wrote a last poem before her death. She says, As I grow old, I tend to be melancholy when the seasons pass. But I live on and see the flowers fall. Leaving, I know it is hard to know when we meet again. So I must be comforted by travel. Facing the end of spring, I am 66 years old. It is autumn. I have lived a long life. Moonlight shines strongly on my face. We don't need to discuss the koans. Just listen to the wind in the cedars outside. Perhaps we can also sense that that longing for boundless love and the connection with nature are in truth really not separate themes. And in the face of this changing and uncertain world, the births and deaths, we see it's a world we simply cannot control, that life is truly ungraspable, and that our own freedom may be willing to maybe rest upon our willingness to live within that ungraspability, that liberation may mean for us the willingness to to release this relentless desire to control, to fix, to grasp, to let go of the endlessly frustrating attempts to pin anything down at all, or to call anything our own. And you see how much in the teaching, in the Buddha's teaching, encourages this: to contemplate all things that arise as not me, not belonging to me, not myself. Now in the face of birth and death, in the face of adversity and struggle that we meet in our own lives, in the face of the desperate suffering and torment we see in our world, perhaps we see that our deepest and wisest response and perhaps the only response that truly makes a difference is to nurture a boundless and an unconditional love. That this is a refuge for ourselves and a refuge for all beings. To let that boundless loving-kindness pervade all quarters and to be embodied in our thoughts, in our speech, in our actions. We also hear in this poetry and stories of these mystical women and their journeys this longing to discover a deep and profound connectedness and understanding which almost goes beyond, which does go beyond the boundaries of what we call our individuality certainly to understand and to respect our own unique story and life and to understand that it rests within a reality much vaster and larger than the narrow sense of a separated self-existence that we too easily can find ourselves inhabiting. It's certainly not an invitation to annihilate ourselves, but to deeply understand that our sense of who we are, our sense of self, our, our story, the story of our lives, is part of, and in truth, an expression of, a universal story. That our hearts and minds, our longings, our fears, are echoed in countless other stories. And the boundless heart really doesn't exclude anyone or anything. And perhaps, you know, we can hear in our own hearts and minds the echoes of this ancient longing to find this vastness and think on some, even some pre-verbal unspoken level. It is a kind of echo of that longing for freedom that brings us here, that brings us back to a cushion, that encourages us to persevere in all that seems impossible. And sometimes we feel impossible to ourselves. A great teacher dug he once said, "'Enlightenment is like the moon reflected on the water. "'The moon does not get wet, nor is the water broken.'" Although its light is wide and great, the moon is reflected even in a puddle an inch wide. The whole moon and the entire sky is reflected even in a single dew drop. Enlightenment does not divide you. Just as the moon does not break the water, you cannot hinder enlightenment. Just as a drop of water does not hinder the Moon in the sky the depth of the drop is the height of the moon. Each reflection, however long or short it lasts, manifests the vastness of the dewdrop and realizes the limitless of the moonlight in the sky. We all have moments of joy, moments of peace and happiness in our lives. So, too, do we all have our own measure of loss and disappointment, of grief and struggle. So, too, do all beings. We are all touched by aging, sickness, and death. So, too, are all beings. Our capacity for hatred and love lives side by side in our own heart, as it does in all beings. Our capacity to live in a fearful and anxious way with blame and despair, of course, is one pathway that we can follow in our lives. But our capacity to live with balance and equanimity, with wholeness and compassion and sensitivity, this is also another pathway we can follow and walk. You know, and often we do tend to think of our journey in a hierarchical way. That we often think that first we must restore and recover and heal and reclaim ourselves. That first we must attend to the pains and sorrows and torments of our personal world. And we can even feel or believe that our capacity for compassion for others is somehow contingent on first healing ourselves. Almost the belief that we must be inwardly perfect in order to be compassionate. It's kind of a time-sinking first self and then others. And there may be perhaps a time when we get a glimmer and a sense that Amongst all the torments in our lives, the hurt, the pain, the loss, the greatest torment of all in reality it is is that it is my torment. My hurt, my pain, my disappointment. And then that actually can filter in everything filter into everything, my path, my journey, my work, my (coughs) my success, my failure, my Progress, my lack of progress, and perhaps it is possible, really, not not to blame this, not not, not to use this as another ground for self judgment. But perhaps we can shift our perspective just a little. I mean, it is true that our story and our life, in its events and experiences, is different. Than any other life, to be treated with respect and dignity and responsiveness. Yet apart from the events and the experiences that make our story ours, our story is actually the story of the life of all beings. It's the language of the human heart, the capacity to be hurt and injured, the longing for safety and prote- protection. The longing to be free from pain, to be accepted and loved. The longing for freedom, it is the moon and the dew drop. The dew drop and the moon. I think the great art of the spiritual life is to acknowledge and respect the personal, the individual. And in the same moment, to know that the personal is part of a whole. And an expression of a whole, as if we are all inhabiting this same world of longing to be cared for and understood. And then we understand that the torment, the pain of another is actually not just theirs, it is ours. That the happiness and safety of ourselves is not just ours, it is theirs. The protection and the freedom of another is also ours. Almost as if we begin to see life as a single organism. All of us breathing together, feeling together, suffering together, and awakening together. Then the path that we walk is not just my path or practice, but it is really a way of participating in the healing and the awakening of our world. As Milarepa once said, just as I would instinctively reach out with my hand to touch a wound in my leg as part of this body, why would I not just instinctively reach out to touch the pain in another as part of this body. Now much of the sacred poetry and literature of women of the past and the present, we hear in it this ongoing search, and I think this ongoing, very real question of really how not only to realize inner compassion and freedom, but really how to embody it, how to embody it. This is a kind of such, I think, the most challenging dilemma for us all about what happens when we get up off the cushion, what happens when we leave a retreat, what happens when we live our lives amidst this troubled world. Now, when it's interesting because when you read some of the kind of Stories and models, you know, the great yoginis and the great yogis of the past and the present. One of the recurring themes that you hear all the time is about leaving the world. Isn't that true? We hear about leaving the world. We hear about the great yogis and yoginis who've gone to the deserts and the forests and the caves and the mountaintops and lived these secluded, solitary lives. And they're incredibly inspiring models. But I guess I would ask how many of you have got a ticket to a cave? (laughs) It's also true that actually this kind of solitude or leaving the world was actually really not a possibility at all for many women in the past because of so many cultural and social factors. It was just not an option. You know, monasteries often excluded women, and and women often had, of course, just like us, families, people to care for, just like us today. Now, historically, leaving the world was not always an option. Today, it's more possible. Yet I... I sort of also have the sense that if we kind of offered a few tickets to a cave at the end of the retreat, it would actually really not be the first choice for many of you. If we're realistic about it, it would actually not be the first choice for many of us. I mean, certainly in really times of incredible distress and conflict, we ask ourselves where is the nearest monastery? It tends to be a passing thought. I think much stronger for many of us is actually how to live in a world freely, valuing relatedness, interconnectedness, valuing in, in the end of separation and conflict, valuing the body as a doorway to being free in the body, valuing the heart and learning what emotional freedom is, learning how to approach all of these things in our all of these places in our lives that are dear to us, people we care for, children, families, learning how to bring an abundant, abiding, kindness, compassion, to be able to listen to nature and to know that the devastation of our natural world is like the devastation of our own bodies. And to understand that to heal our world is akin to healing our own bodies, to learn to see ourselves as part of a whole. I also would really want to kind of challenge this dualism of either leaving the world or being in the world. You know, because so often these are seen as being opposites, as being contradictory. You know, you're either out or you're in. We tend to make a hierarchy out of them somehow, to feel that that to really seek for freedom living in this life is somehow a kind of, you know, second-rate choice or something. But I also really feel like we need to look deeply in what is meant by leaving the world and what is meant by being in the world. Because the dualisms are really dualisms of form. And to me, they're not opposites, but actually they are embodiment. Each is an embodiment of the other. Because what we really need to leave, of course, is a world of entanglement. We need to leave the world of ignorance and delusion and hatred. We need to to leave the world of, of ill will and grasping and craving. This is the world we are all asked to leave if we are truly going to be free. We need to leave Perhaps the world of leaning upon the world as being the source of our happiness and freedom. But then actually we really also learn what it means to treasure aloneness and solitude being in this world. And solitude does not mean being apart from the world. In my understanding, true solitude means to not lean upon anything in this world. To learn how to be upright. In the time of the Buddha there was this debate and, and there was a time when, when the Buddha came to visit a community and, and there was one monk who'd chosen to kind of live apart from the community and the other monks were very critical of him because he didn't engage in the community and, and, and his defense was, I'm, I'm learning to be alone. And so the Buddha was asked, you know, what what does it really mean to be alone? Is that what it means to be alone, to to cut yourself off, to make yourself disconnected? The Buddha answered, this is not what it means to be alone. He says, a person who does not cling to what has gone by, a person who does not yearn for what is yet to come, a person who does not cling to anything at all in the present, that this is a person who truly understands what it means to be alone. To be upright, to be not leaning. As we see ourselves as part of a whole, it is to know that in war and violence and oppression are just not abstracts perpetrated by others. That war and all that is unwholesome really begins with one single thought of ill will just as peace begins with one single thought of kindness and compassion. So how could we ever imagine that there is one single thought or word or act that does not merit the greatest mindfulness? Now the verses with their themes of interconnectedness The development of boundless love is really to understand that the the kindness and the spaciousness we long for, they're not just accidents reserved for a special few. The boundless heart, the compassion, the unconditional loving-kindness are not just accidents that befall us if we're lucky. They are really seeds that we plant in our hearts and nurture with our mindfulness Encouraging us in this practice to know what it is moment to moment that we are feeding, what we are nurturing consciously or unconsciously. That our capacity, are we nurturing our capacity for liberation or our capacity for imprisonment, our capacity for hatred or for love? Now many of the practices of loving kindness and compassion that we have come to know here they are really we really need to see them as steps in a in a kind of continuum they are steps in the path of liberating our heart they are actually many of the practices we are learning here are practicing to be free they are practices of wisdom they are practicing to know vastness. You know, and Pali is not a language of nouns. Pali is a language of verbs, of process. So when we speak about freedom or vastness or spaciousness, really we kind of need to translate those into verbs. Learning to liberate the moment, freeing the moment, calming the moment. Now, In loving-kindness practice, you know, there are so many, of course, different dimensions and different depths to meta-practice if we've explored it. But in the practice of loving-kindness with the dimensions of the benefactor and the neutral person, for me, I mean, many of any dimension of loving-kindness can do this, but the dimensions of the benefactor and the neutral person In a way, they kind of really give us some very powerful clues about developing a very boundless loving-kindness that embraces ourselves and the difficult people and situations in our lives. You know, very often when people do this practice and they practice with the benefactor, first they almost bring in an archetypal benefactor. You know, a, a person they may not even personally know, but someone, a woman or a man who so embodies the the kind of selflessness and, and kindness and compassion. And part of that reflection of course is really embodied you know ben our greatest benefactors are not people necessarily who've you know retired to caves or mountaintops. Are the people who often inspire us the most in this life are those who, through their kindness or compassion, their courage and their selflessness have actually changed the world that we live in. That we are are almost the beneficiaries of the trailblazing of their compassion, their wisdom. These are often the people who touch us the most deeply because we see that this practice is more than reclusiveness, that it is a practice actually of embodiment and engagement. And notice these benefactors are often people who don't live in distant monasteries, but people who have been upright in their compassion and their trustworthiness and benefactors who ask for nothing in return, who really we see embody a love and a compassion that is without conditions. And then some one way of approaching this practice is to go from one of these archetypal benefactors to a, a benefactor that we have a more personal relationship with, you know, a grandmother, an elder in our community, a teacher, someone or, or a dear friend even, someone who we have a great deal of gratitude and appreciation for the same selflessness, the kindness without conditions. When we focus on the neutral person, as I mentioned yesterday, we bring into our attention, our hearts. We're exploring what it means to cultivate the same unconditional generosity and kindness as we have seen in our benefactors. We're cultivating the same unconditional kindness for a person who we don't know their story, we have no shared history, it's not liking or disliking. But what we are coming to know is our interconnectedness, our shared longing to be free from harm and fear, to be accepted and loved. And from that universal story to the unknown story, we offer our heartfelt wishes for their well-being and their happiness. It's not the language of I and you. It is truly the language of we. May we be happy. May we be safe and protected. May we be peaceful. And we keep learning to come back to the unconditional nature of that offering, which is truly also the essence of mindfulness. The unconditional offering of our wholeheartedness to this moment without exclusion. You can see that within you to a person, we don't ask that that person be worthy or deserving. We don't ask them to be perfect in order to be offered that loving-kindness. We don't ask for anything in return. With the benefit in the neutral person, I really believe that we can begin to taste the liberation of the heart, the boundlessness of kindness. It is on that ground that we learn to bring the same unconditional kindness to ourselves, to all of the difficult people and the events in our lives and to see, really understand that the wisdom part of loving kindness the insight part of loving kindness is really dedicated to breaking down the barriers and the separation between I and you all quarters of the world the whole of the world pervaded with loving kindness. Put away all hindrances. Let your mind full of love pervade one quarter of the world, and so to the second quarter, and so in the third and the fourth, and then the whole wide world. Above, below, around, and everywhere, altogether continue to pervade with a love-filled mind, abounding, sublime, beyond measure, freed from hatred and ill-will Now this boundlessness of loving-kindness is not a mystery that arrives; it's not a some sudden breakthrough, or that's something that we make ourselves worthy of. It is a cultivation and a commitment and a dedication of the moment. In a single dewdrop, knowing whether that single dewdrop is you or another, a difficult person, a neutral person, in a single dewdrop, knowing there is reflected the whole of the moon and that in each reflection, however long it lasts, It manifests the vastness of the dewdrop and realizes the limitlessness of the moon. Every moment of kindness and compassion that asks for nothing in return is truly participating in the healing of the world. When the Buddha speaks of the liberation of the heart, and he does speak of this, the liberation of the heart through loving kindness and compassion, is not speaking about the acquisition of a nice or a pleasant feeling or state, but a true liberation of the heart that knows the emptiness of self and separation, that knows in a very profound way the truth of interconnectedness and interdependence. And it is actually upon this truth that all ethics... And all kindness and wisdom is born. That to harm another is to harm ourselves. To harm ourselves is, in truth, to harm all beings. When that understanding is, is really so clear to us, when we live in the light of that truth, actually, then kindness is all that we can have, it is all that we can be to know what suffering is, the cause of suffering, and the path to the end of suffering. The kindness and wisdom that is embodied moment to moment. Something, these lessons we learn in nature about spaciousness and change, about letting go into every moment, knowing that every moment of contractedness is a moment when we have forgotten something too important to forget. The spaciousness and the liberation of our own heart. The Flemish nun, wrote, All things are too small to hold me. I am so vast. In the infinite I reach for the uncreated. I have touched it, It undoes me wider than wide. Everything else is too narrow. You know this well, you who are also there. Being in this world unentangled is an invitation really to live our life with that wholeheartedness, with that wisdom, to know that both wisdom and compassion are not two separate dimensions, but two different embodiments at the same. There's a Buddhist verse that says, however you live, put your whole heart into that life. Be dedicated and devoted. And if, like the lotus flower which grows out of muddy water but remains untouched by the mud, you engage with your life, Without cherishing envy or hatred, live in the world, not a life of self, but a life of truth. Then surely joy, peace, and freedom will live in your heart. We have just a moment quietly together. Thank you for listening.